The book of Numbers, chapter 14. Uh, this is part two uh, of essentially what ought to be one sermon. Uh, but uh, I started it last week and we're going to finish it uh, this week. So Numbers chapter 14. Um, I heard a very interesting story this week in the news. Um, NPR reported this about middle of the week. Uh, they reported that archaeologists in the Middle East have been able to confirm Egypt's uh, great and historic love and even worship of cats. I couldn't pass up on this, sorry. Not really, but uh, they reported that while exploring a 4,500-year-old tomb in Cairo, uh, archaeologists discovered within the tomb dozens of mummified cats, 100 cat figurines, and one bronze cat statue to the Egyptian goddess of cats named Bast. And I know some of you are thinking it could have been that they were just rummaging around in your grandmother's house. Right? <laughs> I think we can all see more clearly now why Israel cried out to the living God to be rescued from Egypt. The Egyptians were cat people. So, um, I also think that God missed out on another plague opportunity. The plague of cats. Think about it, knee-deep cats everywhere. That is certainly worse than locusts or frogs. Frogs are cute. Um, uh, so yeah, no wonder Israel cried out to be rescued. The Egyptians were cat people. So that's two weeks in a row I've really come after cats for you. And I suspect that some of you now have hurt feelings and want to email me and tell me about how you feel. So I give to you my email address. There you go. I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> uh, no, we, last week we looked at Numbers 14, and we, we looked there at one of the great paradoxes, uh, really, of the Christian faith, which is that God's way is always the best way. That it may be more costly on the front end, but on the back end, it is more rewarding. And we saw Israel sort of confronted with this as they were commanded to go into the land of Canaan and lay hold of what God had promised to them. Uh, but based on their 40 days of reconnaissance, obedience seemed too costly. The people were too big, the cities were too strong, and so they rebelled against their leaders. They were ruled by fear instead of by faith. And we talked about the idea that this wasn't just a matter of some simple phobias that they were wrestling with, but rather these fears revealed a, a heart problem, a faith problem, that they didn't believe in God. They didn't believe in his expressed word. They didn't believe in his sure promises, even though they've seen all the evidence uh, for why they ought to believe in him. And their disordered loves were revealed as they longed for the so-called easy life back in Egypt, cats and all, right? Uh, instead of the promises that God had for them in Canaan, which supremely was that Yahweh would be their God and that they would be his people. And instead, um, they rebelled. But converse to that, the hearts of the people, we see the hearts of Moses and Caleb and Joshua. These were men who loved God wholeheartedly, just this beautiful word that is 
like a sermon in and of itself. They followed the Lord wholeheartedly. And Moses, we saw, was concerned not just for himself or even just for the people, but part of Moses' concern was actually for the name of God, the name of Yahweh. And he sort of argues, if you're going to discipline this disobedient generation, then God, your name might be smeared among the nations. You may lose fame. You might lose the repute of those around. They would look at you and see, see, this God couldn't bring his people into the land like he had said. And so we find Moses praying not just for blessings, but really for the glory of the name of God. Uh, today, as we look at, continue on in Numbers 14, we're looking really at the nature of God as revealed in Moses' prayer here. It's very, uh, very informative. His, he advocates for even the rebellious Israel, and he asks for God's grace. And so again, this really is the second part of last week's sermon, title, sermon which was titled The Hard Way. So this is the hard way too, which sounds a little bit like a Bruce Willis movie or something like that. But um, this part of our sermon explores really why Israel should have known better. Why they should have known better. And our first point, or our third, depending on how you're counting here, is that knowing God's character invites obedience. They should have known better because they had known their God. And so again, here we find Moses arguing with God about his decisions, discipline, the rebellious Israel, and he argues with God's decision over God's own revealed uh, nature. And he cites in his prayer a restatement of how God has once revealed himself to Moses. In fact, if you would turn your hand out over on the back, I have, I have this great revelation of God from Exodus 34, and you'll find that it's very similar to what we, we see here. In Exodus 34, Moses had basically said, God, I want to see your glory. I want to know your glory. And God said, well, I'll give you what you can handle. Let me tuck you in over here, and I'll let you see sort of my trailing glory. And as the Lord passes by, we get this. And Exodus 34, 6, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so this was a revelation that God had given to Moses uh, once before, a while back. And so Moses, as he argues, is calling upon the Lord. He's calling upon this revelation, and he brings forward some of these truths that he has learned. Not everything, not verbatim, but look at verse 17 now of Numbers 14. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt till now. This passage in Exodus 34 that Moses' prayer is based upon is one of the great sort of self-revelations of God in all of the scripture. One of the great portraits of God, especially because it's God speaking of himself. It's him saying, this is who I am. It's not just somebody's perspective of God or what someone else is teaching us about God from their 
lens or their experience, but God's description of himself, and it really is peppered throughout uh, the scriptures. And so Moses hearkens back to this, and he uses it to inform his petition. You see that at the end, based on these things, Lord, do this. He uses it to inform his petition. Think about this. If, if next week I rolled up to church in a Dodge pickup truck, Chrysler, and I hopped out of the truck and I'm wearing skinny jeans and a Dallas Cowboys hoodie, and I'm cradling in my hand a cat, you, you would think, I'm dreaming or I'm having a nightmare, or Eric lost a bet, right? You would see this and go, this does not square with what we know to be true of this guy, of his loves, of his nature, of his character. This is, this is all wrong. And you would confront me about this. You would say, what gives? We know these things to be true of you. And this is what Moses is doing. He's saying, God, we know these things to be true of you. We ask that you would act in just this manner. So I, what I want you to notice here is how Moses' theological awareness shapes his petition, shapes his prayers, it shapes his intercessions, and so it should for us. I hope in your habit of prayer, one of the things that you are accustomed to doing is beginning by stating what you know to be true of God. You will find that it sharpens and shapes the rest of your prayer you will find that you begin praying with the grain, so to speak, along God's nature, along the ways he is inclined to act. Uh, Know your God. Pray according to what you know about him. Let it inform your prayers. And so I want to just kind of run through some of the attributes that Moses uh, lays out here that he recalls from uh, from God's uh, previous revelation. The first, of course, is that you are slow to anger. Uh, anger is not an attribute of God that we uh, probably like a lot or are very comfortable. You know, sometimes in the beginning of a service, a worship leader may say, hey, let's share some attributes of God. What do you know to be true of God? And you might hear, he's righteous, he's merciful, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's a giving God. You almost never hear somebody say, angry, And if they did, we might be like, we're going to escort you out this way over here. Uh, Angry. It's not one that we talk a lot about. And I want to make two points about anger here. Number one, it is absolutely something that we should be comfortable with. The fact that God gets angry. We should be comfortable with that. And we should be comforted that he is slow to anger. Okay? and Let me unpack that a little bit. The Hebrew word uh, for anger here is af, and uh, it, it's sort of a reference to sort of the breathing part of your, your face, your nose and your mouth, uh, especially the nostrils or the nose, because that's kind of where anger manifests itself. Uh, if somebody really gets angry, it's, you know, that's one too many cat jokes, Eric. You know, you see it right here, and um, that's kind of where it manifests, and so what, we're, what we see here is that God is not one who is quick to flare, to, to bluster, to, to respond in this kind of way. Um, and I think, however, we should actually be comforted by the fact, though, that God gets angry. 
it reminds us that God is a person and that he is personal and that he is personally and emotionally engaged with people, with mankind, with our very lives, that he's not removed and unaffected by things that happened. Uh, We might not like to think about anger as an attribute of God, but quite frankly, God would not be good if he did not at times get angry. Uh, It is a necessary trait of a good God because, quite frankly, there's evil in this world. Um, I think one of the ways this is the clearest to me uh, was, uh, I think, about the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School back in 2012. Uh, I don't know why. Something about, and there's been so many shootings and so many evil things. I don't mean to say this has been the only evil thing that we've seen in the last decade. It's certainly not. But for some reason, that particular shooting hit me differently than anything else that I've seen. Uh, 20 kids between the ages of 6 and 7 targeted for no reason. And six teachers and staff uh, that were trying to protect them uh, killed along the way. That's evil. That is just as evil as it gets. And I I think it probably affected me because my, my wife's in education and I remember dropping Eleanor off at school, you know, the following Monday, and I still get emotional about it. Man, uh, I just remember watching her legs run up the pathway to school and just thinking, what if it was mine, you know? That was awful, awful. I also remember the troopers parked their cars out in front of the schools uh, that week so as to say, we got your back, and that was cool and right. Um, but when there are events like that happen, Angers, that's the right response. There's no other response for it than that. Somebody has once said, he who doesn't get angry when he has cause to be, sins. It's provocative. We see that Jesus manifested anger when he discovered the money changers, right, in the temple. A place meant for prayer, his father's house. A place where people were meant to engage God and know God and love him. And yet, here what was meant to be a bridge to help Uh, this relationship had become an obstacle as the money changers had perverted it. And so Jesus gets angry. He picks up the whip and he overturns the tables and it's a right response. Notice also, it's a very notable response in Jesus because it doesn't happen often. He doesn't get angry often. God the Son was slow to anger just as God the Father is slow to anger. In fact, in one of the more mysterious passages in all of the Scripture, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Their natures are the same. So we should be comfortable with the fact that God gets angry. There are times when it's the only right response, but we should be comforted with the fact that God is slow to anger. Or God is not hot-tempered, impatient, or quick to it. And so knowing this about God, Moses prays accordingly. Please don't let your anger flare in this instance here. He goes on to say you are abounding in love, right? Abounding in love. The Hebrew word for love here is hesed. It's one of the great words in the Old Testament, the hesed love of God. It means steadfast, loyal, covenantal love, consistent, reliable Uh, I think it's one of the more important theological terms we find in the Old Testament. Uh, It occurs over 200 times and refers to the certainty of God's love for his people. Um, Hesed love is loyal. It's the kind of behavior we expect from somebody that we're in covenant with. uh, A business partner or a spouse or a mentor. 
Uh, this past week, I got a phone call uh, from uh, my predecessor, Pastor Paul Holmes. And uh, I didn't have time to pick up the call, so I let voicemail get it. And uh, he left me a message, which began with the words, uh, Hi, I'm calling from the Bureau of Sermon Accuracy. <laughs> Paul listens to my sermons regularly, critiques them, and he knows a couple weeks ago I made a bit of a blunder, as I've shared with you. And uh, he's just calling to give me a little bit of a hard time about it. And I also know, because I know Paul, I also know he's calling to tell me, do you know how many times I've done that? And this was it, and this was it. And so he's calling to heckle me, as I deserve, because I'm a heckler. And he's also calling to encourage me, because he loves me. I have a long, long relationship with Paul Holmes. And he is one of few people that I know who in my life has chesed love, loyal, steadfast love. Not because I deserve it or because I'm always right, but because it's what he's committed to me. 246 times chesed is used in the Old Testament, and more often than not, it's used of God for his love for his people. Three to one versus being used man for man. It's used God for man. And over half of those are in the Psalms, which is our intimate book of worship, right? I want to give you some modern examples of Hesed love. Hesed love is shown when a mother nurses her baby in the early hours of the morning, right? When the baby's already been up three other times and mom's exhausted. And maybe it's not even going well. But she's there again and she's giving what her baby needs. And that's Hesed love. Hesed love is at work when a teacher stays late, everyone else has gone home, and he or she stays to develop an ILP for a student in their class who just probably wouldn't cut it otherwise. They don't have the natural intelligence or the support at home, and they need all the help they can get from someone who would believe in them. And a teacher who stays late and works hard for that kid's benefit is showing Hesed love. Hesed love is when you take your coworker's shift when the crisis hits. Uh, it's helping your friend move again. I think there's, you know, that could be a Bible verse. There's, you know, truer love has no man than this, that he help his friend move more than once. That's the amplified version. Hesed love is caring for a spouse or a parent or a friend in the hard days of divorce, disease, or dementia. That's chesed love. And so these are the things that uh, Moses brings to mind, things that God has revealed about himself, things that he has seen on display, and he calls them forward to shape his prayer and his advocacy. We also see the forgiving nature of God, that he forgives sin and rebellion. And the forgiving nature of God, it's, it's stated in Exodus 34. It's something that Moses has known in his head, but now as he prays, he has seen it in his life. He's seen it in Israel's life. Experientially, he has seen the forgiveness of God for Israel time and time again, as they have blundered and he has forgiven. And the forgiveness of God does not mean that he casts out of his mind knowledge of our sins or our actions. He doesn't forget them. Our God is omniscient. 
It means that he chooses not to hold them against us. He does not remember them against us. He does not punish us as our deeds deserve. Uh, and that's, that's what the forgiveness of God shows here. And so these attributes that we've been through so far, these are what we, we might call sort of the pleasant attributes of God, right? That he is slow to anger, thank God. That he's abounding and loyal, chesed, love, steadfast love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. But then there's a turn here. God also holds people accountable. And he judges and disciplines and punishes. In my mind's eye, I think about Moses praying this, like with all kinds of confidence, really engaged in his prayer, remembering this great revelation of God, thinking of the ways he's seen it work itself out. And now he gets sort of to the end of this prayer, but he also does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third, fourth generation wonder if his voice dropped a little bit or his confidence or how he was feeling. I wonder how he got to the end of his, his prayer here. Let's look at this one. Punishing the guilty for generations? That's tough. How do you feel about that? I think it's very contrary to our sensibilities. We certainly don't like to think of our children being affected by the sins of their parents. You can just look to the rhetoric of our politicians. They'll say things all the time like, we don't want to grow this debt and pass it on to our children. We don't want to leave the earth in such and such a way to our children. So we're incredibly protective of our children, at least in our rhetoric. But I think that the difficulty that we see here is the reality that all sin has consequences. And consequences have ripple effects much larger than most of us realize. Now, I actually prefer, in this, for this particular verse, the ESV version of the Bible. Um, I love teaching out of the NIV Bible. I think it's the, the best um, translation for what I'm trying to do on a Sunday morning, which is sort of to teach the big concepts of the passage. But I think in this case, the ESV gets it a lot better. How many of you have ESV Bibles this morning? Let's see your hands. Okay, you guys have the right version this morning. Okay, next week, wrong. But, um, but the ESV translates this passage a little differently. I think it's better. It says this, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's a little bit gentler, it's a little bit softer, it's a little more showing that these are natural consequences that are coming, not retributive consequences that are dialed down. I think the NIV goes a little bit too far and it almost turns God into a little bit of a gangster, you know? It almost sounds like, well, if you cross God, he's going to get you and your kids and your kids' kids. And that's not what we find to be true about God, that's not what's revealed here, that sort of would leave us in a contradictory understanding of God. So I think the ESV gets it a lot better. And I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you too um, that, that not all of the words are actually here in the Hebrew, and I'm, I'm going to spare you the Hebrew lesson here. Uh, but basically, I think we're, we're sort of kind of left with this question of does God forgive or does he not forgive? The, the NIV's rendering, I think, leaves this with a contradiction. But the ESV, I think, leaves it clear with an understanding something like this. Though forgiving, he does not always clear away all of the consequences. And he allows the lasting effect of sin upon even our families 
and upon the surrounding communities. It's not a retributive God. It's a God who's willing to say, if you do the things I've cautioned you against, the consequences will fall out. And I won't clear away all of the consequences. I think this is one of the, just a great example of learning to pray theologically, of understanding what's true of God and letting that shape and form our prayers here. Uh, And so I think the lesson that Moses gets here, I think the lesson that Israel gets and the lesson that you and I should take from this is this, that we ought to be taught not to presume upon the grace of God. Though he forgives, sin is still costly. And our God will not be made a fool of. And that brings us to our next point here. And that's this, that God vindicates his own name. He vindicates his own name. Last week we spoke about the supremacy of God. I know that was a difficult topic for uh, many of you. The idea that God is first and foremost for himself. For the glory of his own name. Israel's redemption. Our salvation. We're, We're beneficiaries for sure. But ultimately, even these things are for the glory of God's own name. And I would encourage you to look at Ephesians chapter 1 when you have time this week, if you're struggling with this idea a little bit. Here we see again and again where God, three times in one chapter, where he speaks of the salvation of man for the praise of his glory. And so up to this point, I think the rescue of Israel and many of the acts of forgiveness, yes, they've been good for Israel, but ultimately they have been for the glory of Uh, of God's own name. But now Israel seems to reach a point of rebellion that is too far. Not too far to be forgiven, but too far to leave them eligible for God's blessings here. Look at verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Down to 26, please. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say, in this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who has counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children, as for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. Man, those are hard words. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me they will meet their end in this wilderness here they will die boy those are some tough words in the old testament right can i just pause here and say praise god for the gospel of jesus christ 
that our sin and rebellion is not counted against us, but counted against Jesus on our behalf. The anger of God, the wrath of God, even though he's slow to it, is poured out on Christ and not on you and me. We're recipients of his grace. But here we see the anger and the hostility of God towards sin and rebellion. And he says here he forgives them, and yet he will not give them the blessings. There seems to be a threshold of rebellion that is crossed. And so it seems to me that there are times when God's grace has been presumed upon, and therefore he vindicates his own name through consequence, through discipline, and punishment. Again, while he is gracious, our God will not be made a fool of. And I think the caution for you and for me is this. Be careful you do not presume upon the grace of God. It's so hard to speak about the grace of God in isolation or obedience in isolation. In fact, I had a professor in seminary who said we probably should never talk about either one of those two in isolation. If we just speak of the grace of God in isolation, then it often leads to licentious living and presuming upon God's grace. If we speak only of obedience, we think then we end up going towards legalism, that we had earned our status with God. And somehow we have to speak of both. By God's grace, because of God's grace, we ought to live lives of great obedience. And I think there is no better passage in really all of the scriptures than except for this passage in Titus, which speaks of these two beautifully intermingled together where it says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. The grace of God becomes a teacher. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. But we see here in Israel, I think, another lesson, and that is this, that some gestures of obedience uh, are too little and too late. Look at verse 36. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, now we're ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they recede again. They went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved uh, from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. This is it is though God has said, listen, you've turned away from me again and again and again. I am going to give you into your rebellion. 
I'm going to turn you over to it. I'm going to allow you to experience the full consequences of it. A part of this makes me uncomfortable because as I look at the reaction of God, I have to suspect that the repentance here somehow lacks some sincerity. That it's not complete, it's not truly from the heart, maybe just outwardly only, partial only. Uh, But I think we see here uh, kind of a tough lesson, and that is this, that even the consequences of God doled out are even sometimes an act of his grace in teaching other generations not to do as others have done. And I think this is one of the lessons that the children of Israel learn, the second generation. They'll go into the land. They're going to suffer for a while. But they're going to learn the lessons their parents uh, did not learn. All of this brings us to this last point here, which I think is how the New Testament takes this passage. The author of Hebrews grabs this and basically sees it as a mirror for our New Testament faith. And I think what, uh, what the, this passage shows us is this, that the window for repentance can expire. In other words, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you, you know some truths about God. You know there is the person of Jesus Christ who came and died for sin. But in your mind, you're thinking, I'm going to get to that someday. Right now, I got some fun to have, and stuff to do. And I'm too busy to be bothered with walking with God. So maybe you're holding off on committing your life to Christ and repenting from your sin. The New Testament shows us uh, from this passage that you could wait too long and you could miss out on the forgiveness of God. Or maybe in your life you're already saved, you're already a believer, and there is some besetting sin and you're just hanging on to it, indulging it, just managing it, just sin management. And this passage confronts you and basically says, God is not going to be mocked by your pet sins. This is how the New Testament deals with this passage. I'll read this in closing. So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the times of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, this is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. And they have not known my way, so I declared on oath and my anger they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold on to our original conviction firmly to the end. As it has been said, church... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Lord, it's a warm morning in a cold place. This room is warm, and it's uncomfortable, and sometimes your word is uncomfortable too. I do pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would direct it precisely to the hearts that need to hear, whether it's turning in repentance and faith to the Lord. Jesus Christ, or whether it's renouncing a besetting sin. God, we don't want to presume upon your grace. We're thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that our sins can be punished in him. I pray, God, that your grace would be a teacher to us, 
that it would teach us to say no to ungodliness and to live lives that please you. May your word have its effect in our hearts, in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.